Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who'll be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. I met my guest tonight very briefly at APAC 2017, and then I was fortunate enough to hear him speak at Johnny Heller's Splendiferous Workshop the day before APAC 2018. He is a prolific narrator, and he's also a dialect coach. Joel Leslie Frumkin, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Hello, sir. Thank you so much for asking me. I'm ridiculously flattered and honored, <laughs> and I'm sure I'll make no sense. Oh, I'm sure you'll make plenty of sense. You made <laughs> plenty of sense at uh, Johnny's workshop, and I really enjoyed getting to hear you speak all about uh, ACX and uh, and all the other things that, that you guys talked about up there. Uh, that was with uh, James Foster, was that right? James Foster and I did a panel on character, and uh, then Sean Pratt, Laurel Schroeder, and I did a panel on the ACX stuff. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah. for, I, I forgot about the the one with the three of you. I was thinking of the one with uh, with James. It was uh, yeah. that that was really cool. I, I since I had never heard James speak before either. That was that was great. So anyway, thank you very much for coming in tonight. I'm I'm really happy that uh, that you had the time. What are you drinking tonight? What am I drinking? Um in the booth because I don't want to spill it. Uh, I have in the booth I'm drinking water, but right outside my booth I have iced tea which I am sadly addicted to probably <laughs> I used to, before I was narrating, I used to go through like two liters of diet. So no, four liters, probably four liters, literally of diet soda a day. Um, oh my it was, God. Yeah, it was not good. And I developed reflux shock. shocker, <laughs> Um, and, and had to give up, uh, anything with, um, carbonation in it. So I then switched the addiction to iced tea. So it's not as bad of an addiction, but it's still, close to hand. Definitely not as bad, but, uh, I don't know. Is it four liters a day? Oh no, 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 no. It's, then a, it's not nearly as bad. No, it's, it's, it's closer to, I mean, I, I can't imagine how much water we drank a day. Can you, I mean, yeah. I, it's, <laughs> as a narrator, it's, it must be terrifying, but, yeah. um, so yeah, so water, <laughs> water, water in the booth and iced tea outside the booth. Got it. Well, I am joining you tonight with a, uh, a brand new drink. It's called a Fort Knox heist. And to explain the, the title, I have to describe briefly what happened here. So our, uh, some friends of ours were throwing a birthday party for their nephew, and they wanted me to do the kind of mobile bartender thing that, that I've done now a couple of times. And but, but the catch was that they wanted me to create cocktails for the birthday boy. So I said, okay, who, well, who let's... is three year, who is three years old? <laughs> <laughs> no, fortunately he was turning, uh, let's see, 92, 26, I guess. Oh, well and that's, so, there you go. Yeah. So he could drink. It wasn't just the adults enjoying adult beverages around the three-year-old. So, uh, <laughs> so I found out a little bit about him and his middle name turns out is Knox. It's a family name. So I thought Knox, Knox. Okay. Uh, Fort Knox, uh, Fort Knox. Let's see, Kentucky. Okay. Well, bourbon, uh, let's see, Fort Knox gold. Right. So, so I came up with this drink. It's uh, it's bourbon base and then little lemon juice to kind of zing it up a little. Um, some whiskey del back, which is a local distillery here in Tucson that makes an unaged mesquite smoked clear whiskey, and uh, Goldschlager, uh, which is a, a cinnamon uh, schnapps kind of thing, and just a little bit of honey syrup, half half honey, half water, just to sweeten it up, just a tiny bit more than the Goldschlager does. So I thought, okay, I like this. What do I name it? And I thought, well, let's see, the, the cinnamon and the smoke kind of, well, let's see a bomb going off at Fort Knox. Okay, so somebody's trying to break into Fort Knox, and what do they want? They want gold, so we got the Goldschlager. So uh, that's what I came up with. So I am having tonight a Fort Knox heist. Is it any good? It is. I, I it was actually it was actually the hit of the birthday party. I'll tell you. I had like, I'm so glad. I think something like eight or eight or nine people said, "This is great. I want another one." <laughs> so I think we, it would have been great if you'd done that like entire like breakdown and explanation, and then you'd been like, "And it tasted like crap." <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say that the other drink that I came up with, it took a little bit of work to come up with something that worked. I thought I was starting out well, and it was just a good start. That's all. So. Huh. Anyway, enjoy your water and or iced tea if you can reach out the booth, and I'm going to have my Fort Knox eyes. Cheers! 
Cheers! Yay! All right. So, Joel, Thanks. where are you from? If I remember correctly, you're uh, you're on the East Coast at this point. I'm now in Orlando. Got it. All right. Where are you um, from? Where am I from is a very long, bizarre answer, but I was born in Canada. My oh. dad is Canadian. My mom is American. But I was raised from the age of three in Bermuda, which is a British colony. Um and went to an all British school, no American friends, all British, all British friends, all British teachers um, from all over the UK, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, uh, Liverpool, Bolton, wow. you know, um, so so really grew up in Britain um, and then and then went to London for three years. Um, so I my exposure to sounds, et cetera, was much more much, much, much more British than American. And the only reason I sound this way is really because of my parents. But also when I went to university, um, they had to standardize my American because when I get tired, I sound very British. Um, Interesting. So, yeah. so you kind of revert to what you heard Ab around you growing up. Absolutely. And, and, um, uh, and yeah, and I, my, my party trick is explaining the Bermuda triangle to people. I can, <laughs> I can, I can, I need a napkin, so I can't do it. I can't do it here, but, but it's, it's Bermuda is the top of a volcano that, that erupted. And so it kind of is shaped like a Nike swoosh uh -huh. and the, the rest of the curve of the volcano that didn't come up above the water is all reefs and boats would come at it from various directions, not seeing all the reefs and crash. And so, ah. So if you if uh, start, uh, next time I see you, I'll I'll give you the Bermuda Triangle diagrammatic spiel. Sounds good. I'll take it. Huh. So um, so you grew up in Bermuda and you went to London. So why was it that you went to London for three years? Um, I went there uh, apprenticing and working as a director um, and as a set designer. I set designed on the West End and I was assistant or I assistant directed um, and. Uh, I did um, Delicate Balance with Maggie Smith and Eileen Atkins, among other things, um, and did a couple other things on the West End um, and was there for three years and loved it. So that was after that was after university. And where was it that you went to school again? I went to USC, University of Southern California oh, sure, yeah. um, for my undergrad and my master's. My undergrad was in performing. And then before I was ready to depart as a senior, they kind of hijacked me and they didn't want me to leave. And they arranged a directing slash design masters for me. Um, That's that fantastic. I did that, that I, that I stayed and, and did, um, for two, for a period after that. So I did my undergrad and my masters there back to back. Um, but it was great because as an audiobook narrator, I've got this grounding as a performer and also this directing background, which is what I was doing for, you know, I, at least 20, almost 20 years after I graduated, I didn't intend to be a performer. I, I was going to go completely the director route and then have uh. cir circled back to acting, um, through and, the audiobooks. And so it sounds like you think that, um, you know, some, something to do with acting kind of in some small way helps when it comes to audiobooks. <laughs> <laughs> I do not, I don't understand. Uh, and I, 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 um, I coach sometimes and I, and I, I'm, and I'm a teacher. I mean, I was a university professor for a long time. And when people say to me, I want to be an audiobook narrator and they have never taken, never taken an acting class. It just, it blows my mind. But I guess, um, I guess they learn the hard way. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but the, the, certainly the narrators who have influenced me and inspired me, cause I was an avid listener before I became a narrator were great actors mm -hmm. first and foremost. Um, yeah. Well, so, uh, let's go back to the, the school thing. So you said that you were a professor. Um, yeah. And, um, and what did you teach and where I taught, I taught, um, at NYU, for a while, I taught dialects, um, and I was a dialect coach in New York, and I coached a lot of regional productions and the national tour, like the national tour of The King and I with Sandy Duncan and various and sundry other things. And then when we moved, we moved to Indiana. Um, we wanted to become, uh, we had started producing, and my husband, now my husband, um, and I uh, wanted to open a theater 
because we're insane. And we, <laughs> we, we searched for three years all over, basically all over the United States, mostly the East Coast, and finally found this uh, space, this hundred year old vaudeville theater in uh, a very small town in Indiana. And um, I'd never even been to Indiana. And we thought, it, we fell in love with the space and we thought, let's do it. Um, and we ended up there for a period. And then the socioeconomic political sphere of Indiana changed, which is how I ended up rerouting into narrating. But while I was in Indiana, um, I taught um, acting and, uh, for at Purdue. And then I became the head of a drama department for... Um, uh, a place called Manchester University um, that I, I ran uh, their their basically ran their theater department and wow so that was that, that, this is great I did not realize uh, have, I mean it's not like we spoke all that all that long when when I saw you at APAC but I had no idea that your acting and theater and dialect and uh, all of those things that that background went back so far yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you've been I doing mean, this a long time. Yes, far, um, far longer than the, the narrating is it's just going on three years, two and a half years now. Um, and, and has been this perfect culmination that just kind of landed in my lap of everything, sorry, everything that I'm passionate about and everything that I love to do. But, um, it, it just sort of mushed everything together that I'd been doing since I, gra you know, since I went to university, basically. How great is that? It's, it's really amazing. I'm very lucky and I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Yeah, um, no kidding. That's, that's great that all those things could come together and now you're doing all those things that you love in a very different format, but they're all together. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So did, had you done any voiceover work before going into audiobooks? Um, you know, slightly I was, when I was in New York because of the dialect stuff, um, I would quite often go in to, uh, for English as a second language, uh, textbook audio companions uh. because, and this is, this is really interesting. And I, and I never thought about this, but when they're teaching English as a second language, they need the students to hear English as it is spoken in various dialects. So they, they recognize the words. So I would go in and be an Australian kid and a British kid and a Hawaiian kid. And so, so they wanted the various sounds, which was really interesting to do. So that was my one foray into it. Um, until I then, and when we were running the theater in the off seasons, I would sometimes do, um, I would do like one man radio dramas where I would do like an abridged version of Sleepy Hollow or mm. Drac or Dracula or Treasure Island or whatever. Mm -hmm. And pe and people really responded to those. Um, where, how was that distributed? Um, I just no, I just did them live in the space. Oh, that's great. So kind of a, yeah, yeah. a, a one man show, but with it, parts and characters and everything. Exactly. It was kind of the way Patrick Stewart did a Christmas Carol. That's where the idea came from. Ah. Um, so, so, so yeah. So you got into, uh, audiobooks and, uh, and it took off really quickly. I mean, if I look you and your pseudonym up on Audible, you've got well over a hundred titles and that's it's about just, a hundred, it's about 160 now, I think. Yeah. And that's just over the past two and a half years. Yeah. I, um, I have, uh, the, the we decided we needed to, to, morph out of being in Indiana. Um, and a friend of mine who I've literally known since I was 16 because she grew up in, she, she's from Bermuda as well. Um, uh, her name is Beverly Crick and she records a ton for Tantor. She's, she's an incredibly talented narrator. And, um, she basically said to me, why don't, why aren't you trying to do this? You know, it had the industry at that point had changed where it didn't matter where I was. Right, you know I mean? right. Yeah. Um, Home so, studios being what they are now compared to 10, 15 years ago. Ex exactly. So I gave it a shot. And as everybody does, um, 
began in the what I call the summer stock of audiobooks and started off in ACX and it just snowballed. Um, I think because I'm very lucky in that my, where I'm not lucky is I do not have a great voice for radio. I, I hate my speaking voice. Um, what's funny is, is I hardly ever use it as a narrator because I do so much dialect work. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of all the dialect work and because I had this weird, um, background as a, as a kid that allowed me to switch between authentic British and authentic American, um, much like Katie Kelgren, who was a huge influence on me, um, uh, I was able to get books that were tricky to cast. And I ended up being a solution for weird things like that, where That's there was always a, nice when you, when you, you can be a solution to somebody else's problem without even trying. Exa- exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, I, one of my biggest legs up in the industry has been the fact that I've probably now done like at least 10 Australian titles for Tantor, like first person Australian. Oh, no kidding. Um, so the whole thing is Australian. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's just, it's, it's, I, I've been very lucky in that even though I don't have a voice like, you know, A.T. Chandler or, um, you know, or you or those, those, you know, s- those sexy voices that I've found where it can work. Um, yeah, absolutely. And as I learned early on in my VO career, it's not really about the voice. It's about the acting. Absolutely. Doesn't, doesn't matter whether it's audiobooks or commercials or industrials or what have you. Um, you can, y- your voice will, will carry you a little ways in certain, in certain genres. It's not going to carry you very far. I learned that the yeah. hard way. <laughs> huh. A lot. I think that a lot of voice actors do um, that. Oh, you got a great voice. Okay, I'll go into voiceover, and then they find yeah. out the, the the sad. Re- well, not sad, but the uh, the more difficult reality if you have no acting background. So, exactly. in any case, that's that's great that uh, that that has worked out so well with the dialect stuff. Um, I'm interested going back a little to to your university experience and your teaching experience. Aside from the fact that you grew up in a place where you could switch back and forth because you were surrounded by people that were essentially British, and yet you were not, um, and you had family who were not, so you could switch back and forth between those two, but you know dozens of dialects and accents. Um, How did that come about? I was very lucky while I was at university, I got taken under the wing of one of our speech teachers and our dialect coach. Her name is Deborah Ross Sullivan, and she uh, still teaches and she is an utter genius. And she kind of realized that because I had grown up not just around one sound, Um, Like if my parents had moved to Cornwall, for instance, I would have just grown grown up around that sound. But because they moved to a place where British expats from all over ended up congregating and my biology teacher would be Scottish, my my science teacher, sorry, my um, English teacher would be Liverpool, my math teacher would be Birmingham because of that. I grew up with not just an ability to switch to standard British, but I grew up with an ear for the different musicalities. Mm, and she it. and she realized that I had a facility for a spectrum of them um, and really pushed me. And then when I started to do my master's, even though I was no longer doing performance work, I studied with her privately every week and we would tackle a new thing and you know, we, I, it became this huge passion, uh, for me. So it spread from the British into, into everything else. Once she discovered that I had an ear. That's great. Um, so, so it was partially, it sounds like it was partially natural talent and partially because it wasn't just from people around you from one location that sort of, uh, opened the door to being able to hear those things more easily. Absolutely. I mean, I guess it's kind of like if a, if a, if a kid grows up learning four different languages than learning another 
two or three is less of a struggle than somebody who only grew up with one language. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, you, so I was very, very lucky for what I want to do. Yeah, no kidding. And um, and it's great that, that you have that not only for your work in narrating, but also in being able to help other people do the same thing, being able to pass along the information that has been so interesting and helpful to you personally. Yeah, I love to teach. I really love teaching. That's um, great. That's great. So within uh, when it comes to narrating, do you have uh, what you would call a specialty? I mean, 10, 10 books from an Australian first-person point of view is, is one thing, but I don't imagine that that's all that you do. In fact, I know that that's not all that you do. So do you have anything that you would consider a specialty or niche that you enjoy sticking to, even though you may do other things? Or are you pretty much happy narrating anything? Um, I'm pretty happy narrating anything unless I've discovered that I am not the person who can cope with basically doing biker gang Navy SEAL romances where there's like 17 burly, huge, deep voiced guys <laughs> that all have to sound different. Those books, I used to try and be the I used to try and fit the square peg in the round hole. And it was it's just not. So I've learned I've started to learn what I'm not the best at mm -hmm. and to and to and to steer people towards other people who are better than that than I am. But in terms of genre, I I um, I do a lot of LGBT material, a lot like like over, I think about over 90 titles of my work is is that spectrum. Oh, so that's um, over half. Yeah, over half. But and that's is the that's is Joel Leslie, which is my middle name. But um, but I don't. Um, but again, that stuff is also very dialect heavy. Usually when I'm the guy that, or when I'll pursue a project in that genre, um, it'll usually be a British book or an Australian book or, um, or a Scottish book or whatever. And, but, but as the career is developing, um, I'm really fond of, I'm very fond of doing historical romances. I wish sometimes I desperately wish I was a woman because my favorite things to read are cozy mysteries and they don't <laughs> write, they, they don't write those for men. No, um, I know, I know what you mean. I've thought of the same thing at some point is like, I like the, I like the mysteries that are quirky and funny instead of, you know, you get police procedurals that are all, you know, dark and all business and the cozy mysteries are almost always from a woman's point of view. Yeah. I mean, in fact, if you look it up and if you look up the genre in Wikipedia, I think it says it's it's female and, and lists like uh. two exceptions. <laughs> um, but um, and, and I mean, I'm lucky that I've gotten one series that's done very well for me. That's a John. It's called the John Pickett Mystery Series by Sherry Cobb South that that has done very well in audiophile. And um, so so I love those and I would love to get to do more of those. And my real thing that I I would be happy doing every single day for the rest of my life is actually bizarrely the kind of flip side of the romance department. Um, I'd love to do middle grade and YA. I'd really love to do ton. I, I would be so happy doing scholastic books until I die. Um, <laughs> I love the color that you get to do with them. I love the playfulness. I love the bold characters. You know, it's, it's, um, Again, kind of like Katie, Katie Kelgren, that was that was where she was able to really that was her sandbox where she could really play. Mm -hmm. um, and and so those are the kind of things that I, I love doing. Um, so but yeah, of, no, kind, kind of all over the map that, that you have done more than half in one area, but you're really happy with with most things. What about nonfiction? Um, I have just started getting more nonfiction titles. Um, and, uh, I, th and weirdly it came, it, it sort of came out of the LGBT romance stuff because, um, first Tantor was like, we've got this biography of Harvey Milk. Do you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, wow. which was, which was great. Um, and then the next thing they sent me, which is, which I'm recording right now. And is, it's a dream come true beyond belief. It's a book um, called all that jazz by Ethan Morton about the making of the musical Chicago and the history of the musical Chicago, which 
which for a little gay musical theater queen is basically like Christmas. It's, <laughs> it's so bizarre to be recording something that literally feels like it's a lecture I would be giving in a class anyway. Like it almost feels like it's, you, do you know what I mean? It's oh, very yeah. interesting yeah, yeah. to do, to do a nonfiction title where everything on the page, you already kind of feel like you're not only passionate, but this knowledge, you know, you have, you know, I'm talking about people I've worked with. I'm talking about theaters that I've, that I've had jobs at. It's very weird. Yeah, no, um, that would be great. But it's, it's really, it's been really, really cool. And then, um, I have, uh, I got a, an amazing book that I'm going to be doing from Brilliance, my first title from Brilliance. Um, again, like it, through the LGBT stuff, it's like, once you embrace a genre, then other things will find you. Mm-hmm. Um, or once you find your niche, then, then other people will let you blossom from that niche. You don't have to pound at it, I don't think. Yeah, but it's a, it, and it sounds to me a lot like what you're saying is um, advice that you hear sometimes, it's a little difficult to take when it's early in your career, still difficult for me to take it sometimes, is um, you, don't, you don't necessarily get ahead by doing this or that. You get ahead by doing good work. And, yeah. and if you do good work, whether it's in theater, I mean, I heard this back when I was doing theater as well, um, if you do good work when you're in theater, um, just the work that you're doing is what's going to impress people and it won't necessarily shoebox you into one specific thing. If it just so happens that that is the one good, one thing that you're good at, then yeah, you might end up getting pigeonholed. But otherwise, if you do good work, you will get noticed. It just might take some time. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but of course it's, it's not bad to embrace those things about you. I think it was B Arthur who said, you know, I'm a woman of a certain age who has a certain attitude because somebody was asking her about kind of getting typecast and always playing the same type of roles. And she's like, uh, you know, that's how people see me. Who am I to complain with the amount of work that I'm getting? So it's not necessarily bad, but, uh, it is, I think that it is also very true that if you just do good work that, uh, you will get noticed. So, and it sounds like you certainly have because, uh, you know, working with the different publishers you've worked with, um, you mentioned brilliance. Is that going to be from a home studio or is that going to their location? Cause I know that they do a lot at their location. Um, that one we're doing because it's, it was a very short notice turnaround. It kind of, they, they, they need it done relatively quickly. They said I could do it from home. Mm. I really, I really wanted to go to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully soon they'll send me something else and I'll get to, but so far everything I've done has been from my home booth. So Um, tell me about your, your setup at home, uh, your home booth there. I know that, uh, I think it was two years ago you were posting about your husband or partner at the time. I'm not sure which, uh, was going to be building you a booth and, uh, you were involved in one of the conversations I was involved with about the dog walks plans. And, uh, so tell me what about the booth that you're working in now? Um, he, yeah, he took the DAW box plans and then basically added to them. Um, unfortunately we made the decision to make it narrower than it originally was. And now I would give anything to have that damn foot of space back. Um, <laughs> it's funny how much difference six inches oh to a foot can make in a space God. this size, right? <laughs> um, it's about, it's about, I think I've got about three feet with padding, um, by four feet, maybe five feet. I don't mm. know. Um, but, uh, it's wherever the dog box plan was. And then he made it double walled and, um, and he's, he, oh, I keep hitting my mic. That's so right. sorry. He, um, just you and me, nobody a, else is listening. He, <laughs> he does, he does a lot of construction, um, and, and like set construction and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. is very handy, um, can do plumbing and electrical and all that junk. Um, so he did a, he did a really great job building me a very, solid booth, mm-hmm. um, which was a bitch to move to Orlando, but we oh managed. Oh my gosh. I did. I, yeah. I'd forgotten about that, that you weren't in Orlando at the time, having just built my booth from those plans, doing double wall, full two by four wall construction, um, taking this apart and moving it. I just, I can't imagine going through that. I would almost rather build <laughs> a new one in my new location, but I say almost because I don't want to have to do this again. <laughs> Luckily, he knew he knew we were likely going to be moving. So he he left it well marked to 
take apart that's when good. it needs, you know. So oh, yeah. yeah, that's um, great. That's great. So, so you, yeah, so I you use... did move it, and, uh, and oh, that's yeah. what you're using now. Cool. Uh, what what kind of uh, microphone do you have? I have an NT1A that one of these days I really want to go explore other things, but it's been it's been good for me. That's um, that's hysterical because that's what I'm using as well. Um, oh really? Yeah, I've got an NT1A, and I've been saying for a long time now that um, when the time is right, I am going to be getting a Neumann U87 just because I want it. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> I understand that the microphone does not make the performance, but I've used U87s before. I like the way I sound in them. I want one. So someday, it's it's not in the uh, immediate future, but someday that's what I'm going to be getting. But that's was, that's great I, that you're using the NT1A. I was kind of. Um not bright because of the of the uh pros there were to living in indiana and i don't have a long list of them (laughs) um we lived 25 minutes away from the sweetwater headquarters wow um so i could have i i the the fact that i didn't go and sit and play with a gazillion microphones when i had the chance was very foolish mm. um but they're the ones who gave me this one as a as a it was intended to be the training wheels but it's done very well by me so yeah no i i think it's a fine mic um i there are some people who will argue that it's a little bright or brittle depending on mm. who you're talking to and how they want to describe it for me i don't know if it's just my my voice quality or uh or the the specific one that I got or what, but I've I've never really found that to be a problem. So, uh, depending on your voice and your space and everything else that affects microphones, uh, I I think it's a fine mic. So, um, so that's great. What about um, so you talked about things that you are learning and have learned are not your strong suit. What about anything that you won't narrate? Is there anything that you would say? Whether it's my name or my pseudonym, I'm not willing to do it. Um, I got sent um, by accident um, a publisher with which I have a great relationship um, sent me a book that that on its surface looked like it was about trans history. But it turned out it was by an extremely right wing um religious figure who was basically saying trans people are insane. Um, and, and what had happened was they looked at the title, read like the first three sentences of the blurb and thought, Oh, Joel would do that really well. And they sent it to me. And then I wrote back that I said, are you, do you, are you, (laughs) and, and we, they were like, Oh no. Um, so that was, I don't, I, I don't have, apart from like the moral limits of I don't want to send something out into the universe that is promoting harm to anybody, mm-hmm. um, genre wise or, or subject wise, I'm pretty open to most things. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the I people mean, that I talk to are, um, I, 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 one of the things that I hear a lot is that people aren't willing to narrate anything where there's non-consensual sex or, promotion of violence against people, um, not just violence against people, but promotion of violence against people. Um, but aside from that, most of the people that I talk to are willing to narrate a lot of things. Um, yeah, I, I had, a, there was a comment recently that, um, that I really appreciated, which is I won't take on certain political topics that are ideas that I don't agree with. And the reason is because I'm not going to be able to sell it. And yeah. I thought there's there's an honest answer for you. It's it's not just uh, you know I'm not willing to do it, which I think is fine as well. But it's um, you know I'm an actor, and if I'm going to have this material and it's going to be that difficult for me to actually act this material and um, bring it out in a way that is not somehow in my voice saying, well, here's the information that I don't believe then uh, then I won't do it. And I thought that's that's very um, uh, professional and uh, and ethical. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, so that all sounds great. Tell me about your coaching. So, you know, you learned all the dialect stuff and you continued learning the dialect stuff and then you taught the dialect stuff. And now in the audiobook world, 
you are definitely well known as a dialect coach. So, uh, so tell me about that. Um, you know, it's, it's great with Skype because it doesn't matter where you are again. Um, but with dialect coaching in particular, you kind of need for the other person to be able to see your mouth and your jaw and where you're moving things. Ah, um, I, something I hadn't thought of before, but that is yeah, very true that as you're speaking, there are so many moving parts. Yeah. I mean, you can, like, I can do it over the phone and I can tell if somebody's mouth is in the wrong position or their, or their placement isn't correct or they're pursing their lips too much on a vowel, but it, it helps them to be able to see you demonstrate a lot. Um, so I think that, that Skype has been a, a great boon for that particular kind of teaching. Um, I do, I do performance coaching too. I, I don't, um, throw myself out there as being, um, you know, a Paul Rubin yet, but I, I certainly, um, beginner and intermediate, uh, narrators, I've had, uh, great, a great time helping develop skills with character and skills with subtext. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's very interesting because you end up pulling on all the skills that I had teaching freshman acting, you know, yeah, it's, it's, I was just going to say, I didn't realize that you did performance coaching, but after hearing the, about your extensive background, which I was unfamiliar with before, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that you would be fine as a performance coach, not just dialects, but, uh, performance as well with that kind of, uh, background, especially the directing. Yeah, it was, it was Sean Pratt that sort of pushed me out of the nest because I was like, I don't, I shouldn't. And he was like, shut up. You need to do this. And so I that's started. Sean, and it, he can be so that's pushy. Sean. He can be very pushy. <laughs> um, so, but it's been, it's been fantastic. And, um, uh, and you know, the, the, the dialect coaching, what's so different about doing it for an audiobook is, or for, or for narrators in general is when you're coaching a show or you're coaching an actor for a part, you have to get them to say X number of lines, worse comes to worse. They parrot you a, four, a thousand times over until you know, mm -hmm. there's a limit, there's a limit to, there's a limit to how much they have to be able to actually deliver. Mm -hmm. You're, you're working with a finite number of problems. And, but when you're narrating a book, you know, if somebody takes on a first person book, you can't just teach them a couple lines and get them through. Yep. You, you have to teach them the mechanics and the inflection and the rhythm and the music. And so that they can think in the dialect, which is, completely unusual in other, in any sort of learning accents for any other performance medium. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Having, having been on stage uh, a few times myself and having, uh, I was in the weir and that was, that all takes, oh, yeah, that, yeah. that all takes place in an Irish bar, uh, or right. pub or whatever they called it. And, um, and there's only, you know, five characters and the character that I played didn't have that many lines. The whole play was maybe two hours, which means that I was speaking all together for probably 15, 20 minutes, maybe. Um, whereas in an audiobook, I mean, you got 10 hours of, yeah. of straight, you know, talking all the way through. It's you the whole way, all of it. <laughs> so I, I certainly see what you mean. That's uh, it's a very different thing. Yeah, you can't you can't cheat. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you, you can't just kind of get the actor through it. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a very different kind of, kind of coaching. So for the dialect coaching, um, what's, what's your approach? Is it, is it more, or do people seek you out more for a one-off? I'm going to do this book. And so I'm going to do one, maybe two sessions with Joel and he's going to impart all his wisdom about how to do that accent and that's it. Or is there, do you have any kind of a program where you're, okay, in this number of sessions, we're going to go over these different things for this particular accent? When, yes, um, which is certainly the kind of course that, you know, when you're teaching dialects at a university, that's exactly what it is. You mm -hmm. know, you spend a certain number of sessions on Cockney and you spend a certain, um, 
and hopefully teach the person the skills to then go on and be able to break down other dialects for themselves. Um, but usually within this industry, it's been, oh my God, help. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think, and I think what often happens is people, people get a book and they don't realize, or they're not warned ahead of time that there's going to be the Jack in the box, sudden South African or Swahili character that nobody warned them about. Right. And the, the book is due in two weeks and they've just, they've got to get it done. Um, I've had some people with like standard British and things like that want, want a more extended, uh, study that, that then gets them, you know, independent. But, um, my advice to people is what I do is, is try and find an audio book narrated entirely in the dialect. Mm. Um, because then you can just listen to the music and the inflection over and over and over again. Right. You may have um, to put a new tire on it, but you're not reinventing the entire wheel. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, so like find somebody from Birmingham narrating an audiobook or find an audiobook set entirely in Birmingham and listen to that because then you get more than a one minute sample on the IDEA website, which is amazing. That international dialects archive I've, thing, which I've, is. Yeah, I've just seen that. I think twice in the past 24 hours, I've seen people post about that for a variety of reasons. So I'm going to have to check that out at some point. Yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary resource. Um, but but you get, you know, a minute clip or a two minute clip, but to be able to just sit and listen and absorb something for hours is, is I think a, a great tool. Sure. Yeah. So what about the performance coaching? Do you have any kind of a, um, a program there or is that more of a, I just want to work on X for a while. Can you help me with it? It's, it's not as much of a program as Sean has, where it's a very delineated curriculum. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I definitely have things that I will work with people on and exercises that I will give them as homework and, a and, a a goal to, to work them through a certain, um, arc of study if I can, and if they're able to extend like that, I mean, um, I've got, I've had some long-term students that, that they come and they go obviously as I do with my coaches. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, who have, who have been students, not just one-offs. Absolutely. And what do you find you are frequently spending more time on? Um, you mean as a coach? Yeah. For me, the, th my big thing is third person narration living with the same, I don't want to say the same energy because it, it's a slightly softened energy. And Andy art talks about it as being under the wall, underwater slightly, but, but with the same vibrancy and naturalism as people approach things that are in quotation marks, I will consistently see my students see a line, a couple lines in dialogue and they will act the pants off and at pants off it and they will sound like an actor who is inventing the thought for themselves and it's coming out spontaneously and then the quotation marks will end and suddenly they sound dead and like they're reading mm -hmm. um and and to try and bridge that gap to try and have i i think that you need to know who your narrator is talking to you need to know who your narrator is not in a goofy character way, but you need to know what that person's worldview is, what their opinion of what their opinion of the protagonist is, what their opinion of the other characters is, what the opinion of every room they're describing is for, for me. Um, and this is this is where Paul Rubin and I had a slight disagreement, which was very funny at Johnny's thing. But um, yeah, that was great. It, it really was from a from an audience perspective. I have to tell you that mm -hmm. hearing that conversation was great because and I think that Karen White, who was um, there in the audience and I think at that point spoke up, um, I, I really appreciated how she bridged the gap between you two, which is that you're coming at things from different perspectives and there isn't necessarily a right answer. There are different approaches to the same end product. Right. And when I was, when I was talking to, to Johnny Heller afterwards, we had this conversation where, where he, he was like, I get what you're, you know, he, he, 
he admitted he was wrong. Um, <laughs> yay. Uh, but, um, but he's, I said to him, you can't tell me that the way that you narrate the way that you, you, the way that you feel your narrator as a character speaks and relates when you're narrating a book for eight year olds is the same as the character when you're doing a Christopher Moore book or when you're doing a dark, you know, Chicago mobster book. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that doesn't, you're not putting on a voice for the genre. You're changing who your narrator is and who they're talking to. Mm-hmm. And it creates a different energy because, you know, if you, there's a, there's just, they, there's just shifts. It's subtle and it changes our, what's coming out of our gut and our, but you can't just say that I just read the text and I'm neutral and I have, I'm not bringing anything subtextual to it because otherwise we would read a book for a six-year-old exactly the same as we would read this. I'm talking about just the third person narration. Right, right. We would, we would read that the same as we would read a Scott Brick, Michael Crichton novel. Mm -hmm. And, and that's not what we do. I mean, you listen to, um, and it's, I think it's the same thing. Another question that came up at that, um, workshop that, that we never really got to, address in a, in a clear final way, because I think the question was misunderstood was, you know, how big is too big for an audio book? Um, you know, what level of performance? And I, I, I think I talked about the Patrick Stewart Christmas Carol. Um, and I'm very lucky in that I have a bootleg of him doing it on Broadway. Wow. And I also have the audio book of him doing it for audio. And it's the exact same book, the exact same lines, word for word, completely different performances. Because of the audience. Because of where the audience is. Mm -hmm. Because the audience is not 500 people, because the audience is right next to him inside his ear. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the characterization doesn't change the way the characters speak the engagement, the, the level of engagement to the text, the passion he approaches the text with doesn't change. It's just, I talk about people like, I talk to students about, you can have a pot of boiling water and that full pot of simmer, simmering water is your performance in a theater. Take an eyedropper, get a little bit of that water. It's still the same temperature. It's still the same. You're just, putting it in a smaller, tinier little lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's the difference with audio. I don't know if that makes sense, that, but that's but a it's, great analogy. I love that. Uh, and, but so you're not, so you're not changing. You don't feel it any less in your gut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's still it, got it. It reminds me a lot of the advice that I've heard of people going from stage to film and, mm-hmm. and, in, and in film, um, you, you have to learn how to be small, but without losing anything. And exactly. And so it, it just, it reminds me of the fact that where you are, who you're talking to, um, the, the, the situation matters. Oh yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I'll have my students do is narrate the same passage as a third person narrator, as if they're telling it to their, telling the story to their grandmother, telling their story to a bartender in a bar, telling the story to a six year old kid and see how, just that different, the, the, who, who is receiving the information brings your narration to life in a different way. That's great. What a, what a great exercise. And what, what do your students normally find when they do that? Is there, is there any, anything that is common among the experiences? Um, yeah, they're, they're surprised. They're, they're surprised. And I think it's a very good way of instilling that I cannot begin on page one unless I know who I'm talking to and why. I think it, it, it does the job very well for teaching them how to be true to genre without playing genre as well. Um, wow. Yeah, that's a great exercise. I got to try that. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to take that as a free coaching session, Joel, and I'm going there to you go. Uh, take something that I'm working on now and, um, and think about it with that in mind and then play it a few different ways. That's great. Uh, and the, and the way you, and the way you would deliver it to a woman is very different than the way you would deliver it to a man as well. 
hmm. as your, you know, if, if you deliver it to your, your wife versus your best friend, the story, or if they're a male is going to be drastically different. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just little, little gear shifts. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. I, I love that. I love thinking about it that way. It just, uh, it, it brings to mind, it's kind of in the same vein of a lot of the acting advice I've heard over the years about, um, how to play things and the fact that it's about what's inside. It's about emotion. It's not about, you know, doing X, doing X, Y, or Z externally. It's, it's about, you know, giving life to whatever it is from inside and, um, knowing who your audience is, is going to change how you bring stuff out from the inside. I, I don't know. I, uh, I like that. So thank you for sharing that with the audience. Yay. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what other words of wisdom do you have for aspiring narrators out there? Uh, any advice that, that you, can see from your own experience and from the experience of the students that you've worked with, um, that would, that would help people move forward in an industry where, uh, as, as I've heard many, many times and which I now firmly believe is a marathon rather than a sprint. And there are no overnight successes. Um, you know, what, what kind of advice do you have to share? Um, I think, you know, I'm not going to say anything new. Um, but, listen, before you decide you're going to do it. I mean, I say the same thing to authors who are getting into audio as well so that they know, they know they learn the genre. Um, you've got to listen and listen and listen to people who are great at it. And when you do that, you'll find your heroes. You'll find your people who you want to emulate. And they're not the same for everybody. You know, I can't want Scott Brick's career because that's not what my voice will do, but I can, but I can worship Jim Dale and I can wor worship Bronson Pinchot and I can worship, um, you know, uh, obviously Katie, um, and, and you find the people that then inspire you to move in the direction where you can be your best, that, that brings out your passion. I, I love the fact that you said they're going to be different for different people, because I have found that as well. I have gotten books from, very well respected uh, in, you know, whether it comes to the number of books or the publishers they've worked with or uh, or from within the narrator community, very well respected. People love them and I've listened to them and I've thought, yeah, I just uh, it's I, I just can't see it. And then I'll listen to somebody else and think, fantastic. Um, yeah. So so I agree. It's it's going to be different for different people. I'm I'm glad that you said that. Um, and, and if you really work to excel at that, those listeners will find you mm -hmm. and they will appreciate the same people that are in the same fan club as you are for the other narrators will find you and appreciate what you do. Um, I also very much believe in listening to yourself. Um, and that may be the director in me that I'm, I'm able to listen analytically and, and, um, and sometimes it's really good to listen to something that you did the same day. And sometimes it's great to listen to the, like the book, a book that you did three months ago with a little distance from, but to see if you're hitting those checkpoints that you, that you want to be, you know, become your own listener, become your own critic, um, in a constructive rather than a de destructive way, um, I think can be very, very beneficial, um, and the other thing is I, I am not someone who says never read reviews. Um, I believe that there is an enormous amount you can learn from the people who are listening to you. And sometimes it will hurt and sometimes it needs to be discarded and sometimes it makes no sense. But if you start seeing patterns, you can learn a lot. I am a much better um, narrator than I was when I started because I learned things from listening to reviews. I, I love that. Uh, I'm the same way. I, in fact, when I was in theater, uh, there's a, an unwritten rule in theater that I'm sure you're aware of that, that you never, ever post on the bulletin board in the green room or backstage any review that was done by anybody um, of the show that you're currently working on. 
Um, right. I, I have seen where sometimes they'll do it when it's an extremely positive review with nothing negative. But um, but I know that there's an unwritten rule, and I never followed that. I, I mean, I followed it by not posting things, but I would always read whatever anybody said. And I thought, you know, I, I will read this, and I will consider the source. And if there is something negative about me, I always had bit parts for the most part, so not really um, in reviews. But if there is something that is in there where they didn't like it for this reason or that reason, I will look at that and think, um, well, let's see. I mean, I can take that a couple of different ways. I can change my performance. Bad idea. Um, I can look at it as they didn't appreciate what we were trying to do. Okay, well, that's that's fine. Some people don't. Um, art is like that. You know, some people are going to get it. Some people aren't. Some people are going to have a different interpretation and want to see it differently, whatever it is. Uh, or I can take it and I can say, hmm, what can I learn from this going forward? And I always tried to do that. And I still try to do it with whatever reviews I get on the audiobooks I've done. I don't read a one-star review and think, oh my God, I suck. I'm terrible. Well, I do for five seconds. But then after that, um, you know, I, I see if there's something in there that I can take. And if there is a trend, absolutely. I'm going to look at that and think, maybe I can improve this. Maybe I should talk to a coach. Maybe there's some way that I can take this information and consider it constructive regardless of how it was actually put out there. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I love that. And I think it's two ways that you can, and I wouldn't, I mean, I, I think that everyone should coach. I'm, I, I would be a coaching addict and coach with somebody every day if I could, cause I, I love being a constant student. Mm -hmm. Um, but there is, it is certainly a way that if somebody can't afford to do a lot of coaching, they can start by coaching themselves, you know, learn to listen to yourself critically and force yourself to get and force yourself to, to go to the next step. Um, that's great I, too. That, I think that that's a, an acquired skill. I, I certainly try to do that. Uh, but I know that it's a little more difficult. It's, it's a little difficult to step back from what, you are thinking a lot of times I find myself as I'm listening to something that I've done, finding myself finding exactly the same beats that I did at the time, which is not necessarily helpful. Um, but, but I think that it's good advice to, um, continually work toward being able to be objective about what you've done and, yeah, and certainly absolutely. possible. Yeah. And every once in a while you get to listen and go, Oh, you know, that didn't suck. That, that wasn't that bad. Yeah. That was okay. Yeah, it's um, great. Usually that's the more recent stuff. I find that if I go back and listen to stuff that I did three years ago, there's 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 a few cringes that usually happen there. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I know that Jeffrey Kafer's mentioned that online many times about going back to what he did, you know, because he's been doing this for a long time as well. Yeah. Um, and going back and listening. And I think that at one point he said, I wish I could redo the first 50 books that I did. And I'm thinking, I haven't even done 50 yet. <laughs> But uh, I certainly understand that, and uh, and I hear it in in what I've done every once in a while if I listen to something older. Um, so it's the worst. In, it's the worst in series. It really is when you when you when you get better over a series, and you started a series three years ago, and you're now on book <laughs> book ten, and you just wish that there was like some little. Um, disclaimer on the front of book one saying he, he gets better, I promise. Yeah, he didn't know what he was doing, really. <laughs> yeah. That would be something. Well, that's great. I think that that is advice that uh, everybody can, uh, can get something out of. So thank you for sharing that. What else? Anything else you want to share? I don't think, I can't think of anything. Um, well, that's good. There's, there's been plenty here. Plenty. Me. Yeah. yeah. There's, there is a lot there to go on. I, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for coming in. And, um, I will let everybody know about this. Of course, uh, really appreciate your time. And, uh, my, my, uh, what's it called again? The Fort Knox heist is just about gone. I don't know how your water and iced tea are doing. They're, they're doing pretty good. They're, they're, they need a refill. They need a refill. All right. That's good. Got to keep hydrated in these booth sessions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Joel. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This was amazing. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Joel Frumkin for coming in. I really enjoyed hearing about his performance and directing background and how his environment growing up had such an impact on his later work in accents and dialects. If you need some help with a character's accent, or just with a character in general, you can find Joel at joelfrumkinaudio.com. 
You can find the audiobook Speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook Speakeasy. If you're enjoying our Speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you could add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support, no matter how small, is greatly appreciated, and it'll help me keep the lights on here in the speakeasy. Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers!